Um, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 22. As I mentioned earlier, we are beginning our uh, summer sermon series called Summer in the Psalms. Um, the Psalms are a unique literary form in the Bible. Um, they're, they're not like other forms, and so they, they come at us a little bit differently with a little bit different purpose. Um, they are, as I mentioned earlier, the worship book of God. They are um, supposed to be used that way um, to give words to our worship and words to our emotions. As I mentioned last week, <clears throat> I think it's important for us to think about that, um, that God um, gives words to our emotions and that our emotions in and of themselves are good things. They are given to us by God. Um, there is a harmful belief in culture that emotion is um, is weakness, showing emotion is weakness, that big boys don't cry, um, but the psalms and especially the, the lament songs are actually used to put words to our tears. There's lots of crying in the Bible, and big boys like David, who writes Psalm 22, and Jesus, for instance, who um, repeats Psalm 22 from the cross, um, are big boys, and it's okay because they cry. There are different kinds of laments. Um, we'll touch on several of them across the, 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 uh, our time this summer. Um, but this one today focuses in on the feeling of being abandoned, um, the feeling of being abandoned by people, and the feeling of being abandoned by God. Where are you, God? We've all asked that from time to time, and it's hard to believe that he is near, isn't it, in the middle of uh, hard times? It's easy to doubt. Uh, David, the writer of this song, King David, struggled mightily with sin. Uh, he was threatened by many, many people, betrayed by friends, and so he um, was good at lamenting. He was good at crying out to God, saying, where are you? It's good for us to cry out in the face of the enemies of abuse or divorce or physical or mental health, loneliness, addiction, fear. It's easy to feel abandoned by God, and it's good to cry out um, and say, where are you, God? Or as our text says, really pointedly, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We're familiar with that cry from the Bible, aren't we? From the cross, Jesus' words on the cross. Jesus is quoting Psalm 22 um, because Psalm 22 gives words to Jesus, how he is feeling, his emotions up there on the cross, to his loneliness, to his uh, feeling forsaken, for his feeling abandoned, for his doubt. And this is the second person of the Trinity, y'all. If this big boy can cry, so can we. Also, give, this gives voice to all of those around him, around him as he hung on the cross. All of those people who loved him were also feeling abandoned by God. And so Jesus' words actually give them words to how they're feeling abandoned, right? Like Mary Magdalene, for instance. She loved Jesus. She believed that he was the Christ. Certainly, she felt a sense of desperation as she saw him hanging on the cross and feel, felt abandoned in those moments too. It was ending like this. Why have you forsaken me? 
But brothers and sisters, we need to know something, that that's just the headline here. Um, back in the day, <clears throat> they didn't know Psalm 22 as Psalm 22. They knew the Psalms very well, but they knew them always by the first line of the Psalm. So when Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those who knew their Bible, those who knew their Psalms would have immediately conjured up the whole Psalm. It was sort of like a headline, like, this is what I'm feeling. And what those Psalms do then to Mary Magdalene, for instance, who's around the foot of the cross, is they, they actually give a pathway for our emotion. That's why the Psalms can be so helpful. They give a pathway from this feeling of despair, this feeling of lament, and they can help us navigate through those things, which is exactly what Jesus is doing for Mary Magdalene and what David is doing for Jesus by giving them these words, inspired by God. <clears throat> and they can do that for us too. So bring your laments now to Psalm 22, or bring your neighbor's laments, if that's the case, to Psalm 22, and let them uh, navigate your way through the hard things that you're dealing with. We're just going to take it a little bit at a time, stop, reflect, and keep going. Verse 1, <clears throat> my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. David first, and then Jesus, on that day, are not feeling God's subjective presence, are they? And we want to feel his presence, to feel the presence of God, to know that we're not alone, to know that we're not abandoned, especially on those dark nights of the soul, right? If you haven't had the dark night of the soul yet, you will. I'm sorry to say. Um, but I think most of us have experienced that. Do you know that that phrase comes from the old mystic poem by St. John the Cross from the 16th century? It is a very mystic poem, the, the dark night of the soul. And it is, it is expressing this man's yearning for the presence of God in the midst of hard things. Searching for God's presence in the darkness of the night. It captures well, I think, our longing when God seems far off. David and Jesus, though, guide us. They give an answer to the faith an answer of faith in that darkness. Back to verse 3. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you did deliver them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. What David is doing here is reminding us of our covenant relationship with God. This is the glue of the history of Israel, the glue of God's people with their God. The covenant, God's promise given back in the garden, reiterated over and over again to be their God. To, to not leave them or forsake them. Even the, the language that begins the poem, my God, my God, is the language of the covenant. It's my God because one of the main promises of the covenant between God and his people is to what? To be your God. And you be my people. This, this unbreakable relationship between God 
and his people. And this is the language here that David is reminding himself of and, and uh, the hearers of and Jesus to Mary and so on. The promise never to leave or forsake that was given to Father Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and David. It's a holy promise, he says. Not like the promise you and I might make. Um, you know, promises for time or attention that we kind of flake on here and there. God's not a flake. He's a holy God. It, this promise of presence comes from a holy God. Now, what's interesting about that, about the holiness of God, that really jumped off at uh, this page to me as I was studying through this, is that the holiness of God um, is also seen as something that divides us from him, right? Right? Like, like Moses was hidden in the cleft because he couldn't see God, or, or, or God had to appear in different ways. He had to make, he had to make, uh, he had to, to put up veils in front of himself so that a holy God couldn't be intimate, really intimate with God. Because in the face of our holiness, like Isaiah, we say, I am a man of unclean lips. Stay away from me, right? So there's the holiness that actually sort of pushes God away. And yet God's desire is what? To always be with his people. So, so the, the, the Hebrews sort of lived in this tension of, oh, I want this intimate relationship with God, but he's holy. And so there's like this push and pull. It's kind of the moth to the flame sort of thing. Right? We, we want to be close, but it's dangerous. It's, it's like Aslan. He is good, but not safe. There's this tension here in this. That, and, and what David is saying is a holy God cannot renege on his promises. A holy God cannot be his flake. And what's crazy is that holy God wants us to himself. He wants us in that relationship. He wants us to tabernacle. We see that. Um, all through the curtain in the temple that separates the Holy of Holies from us uh, so that we could be close but also safe. God's desire is to be near, to hear, to communion. And David and Jesus are reminding themselves of that perfect promise. And so should we, brothers and sisters, especially on those dark nights of the soul. But sometimes we need more than just words, don't we? As one of the Puritans wrote, he said, for the most part, we live upon successes, not promises. Unless we see and feel the print of victories, we will not really believe, right? Show me the money. Show me the money. So David and Jesus proceed to remind them of God's actions on their behalf that backed up his words. They cast their eyes back to the ark, to the parted sea, to the victory of grasshoppers over giants. Right? They have Ebenezer's to remind themselves of what God actually did. You remember what an Ebenezer, not Scrooge, not Scrooge. You know what an Ebenezer is? We sing it in that song that we love, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Everyone's like, what is that Ebenezer when we say that? You know, it actually comes from 1 Samuel 7 from David. Um, David um, has, puts up, a, it's a monument, it's a rock, basically, to remind them of God's deliverance on their behalf. It's, it's a physical reminder that God did something real in history for us. So in the midst of those dark nights of the soul, in the midst of our doubts, in the midst of our pain and our struggle, we can look at that and say, oh yeah, remember 
Remember his promises are true. One of my best friends in the world um, did this great thing. Uh, they, they, when, when he and his wife got married, they decided that they would have a, a bowl of Ebenezer's. You should do this. And basically they're rocks, and they wrote in permanent ink on these rocks uh, different things that God, different ways that God had answered prayer for them. You know, the God things that happen. The God things in life where you're like, well, that was totally a God thing. And so they would write that on the rock, and they would put it in their bowls. And on the dark nights of their souls, they would take those out and say, yeah, but remember, God is faithful. Remember this. He did this in history. This is a good thing, brothers and sisters, to do. And I commend it to you as well. This is what David and Jesus are saying. Is remember the actions that have proven God's promises. Mary, too, had those assurances as well, didn't she? As she looked at Jesus hanging on the cross, she had an Ebenezer or two of her own walking on water, for instance. Oh, yeah, he actually did that. Uh, oh, yeah, he fed 5,000 with a couple of loaves and fishes. Oh, yeah, he actually did that. Right? He, he healed the lepers and he restored sight to the blind. She had all of these different things that she could point to in that moment as she looked at her Savior dying on the cross that said to her, don't forget, I am faithful and I am true. And that's what we need to cling to as well in the dark nights of our soul. But still she laments. And Jesus laments, and David laments, and so do we. Verse 6. This is going to get faster, by the way. Don't worry. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Total sarcasm. The enemy, brothers and sisters, seeks to do one thing mostly, and that is to discredit the promises of God. He loves the dark night of the soul, the enemy does, to spread lies about the character of God or his willingness to come near or his ability to do anything about it, right? You've been there. Can I even trust you? Seeds of doubt watered by the father of lies. In the count of Monte Cristo, um, the hero is being imprisoned um, unjustly and tortured. And he cries out to God and the warden who is there um, mocks him. He says, God is never in France at this time of year. And the hero says, God is everywhere. He sees everything. And the warden says, I tell you. I'll make you a bargain. A bargain. You ask for help, and when he shows up, I'll quit torturing you. He trusts in the Lord. <laughs> the enemy pushes us in the dark night of our soul to forget and discount the promises of God. Don't forget that brothers in the dark nights of your soul remind yourself again of what's true like David and Jesus and Mary verse 9 yet you who are took me from the womb you made me trust at your mother's breasts 
On you I was cast from birth and from my mother's wombs. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. You were here from day one, David reminds himself. You were my God then, just as you are my God now. Still, though, reassure me, Lord, reassure me, God. Assure me like my mother assures her nursing baby. And what follows now, brothers and sisters, is the greatest, most complete, remarkable assurance that we have of all. David looking forward, Mary Magdalene looking at, and you and I looking back to Jesus on the cross. What's really remarkable about these next words, um, this is where people say this is a messianic psalm. It's looking forward to a psalm. But what's really remarkable about this one in particular, it's not looking at the Christ. It's looking from within the Christ. What he's actually experiencing as our God on the cross for you and for me for the purpose for the purpose of dealing with the dark night of your soul and the purpose of reassuring you that God is with us in those dark nights. Verse 12. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me, the biggest, fattest bulls in all of Israel. The, the image here is of a matador in a, in a ring without a weapon. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Spurgeon said of this passage, they're like hungry cannibals. They open their blasphemous mouths as if they were about to swallow the man they abhorred whole. They could not vomit forth their anger fast enough through the normal aperture of their mouths to the man hanging on the cross. Verse 14, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint, extended on the rack of the cross, bones popping away. It's torture, brothers and sisters. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast, solid to liquid to vapor, disintegrating under the wrath. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, like a chalice in the kiln, um, under the heat made brittle and smashed into pieces. And my tongue is like sticks. That tongue that had given so much encouragement, that tongue that had said so many amazing things, so much wisdom, so much care, so much hope, that tongue now is swollen and made useless. You lay me in the dust of death, dust to dust. Ashes to ashes. Verse 16, for dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers surround me. There's no escape. There's no gap through. There's no way out. They have pierced my hands and my feet. Would have been much faster to go for the heart. But they went for the place of most torture and pain, the place with the most capillaries and nerve endings. Verse 17, I can count my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. The shame fully on him, our shame fully born. The enemy's full force absorbed. Another cry comes in verse 19. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, come quickly into my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of lion and right there in the middle of the sentence. It stops. 
and it's changed. And remember, remember that the, the sentence, the, the, uh, the verse numbers are not inspired. Commentators agree that there should be a big break right there. Because what happens in the break of that verse 21, after the final cry from save me in the mouth of the lion comes, here in the middle of that verse, the answer comes. The lies and the hate of the enemy are stopped. The darkness is lifted over the scene and the curtain that separates God and man, the curtain that separates us from a holy God is torn in two from top to bottom. And Jesus, brothers and sisters, walks out of the tomb. Here in the middle of verse 21, David and Mary and you and me are delivered from the dark nights of our soul, delivered into the glorious light of my God, my God, who cannot forsake us. And then comes the response. The psalm leads then from a psalm of great lament to a song of great praise in his victory for us, 21b. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. For all the families and all of all the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth Eat and worship before him. They shall bow, bow down and go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him, and it shall be told of the Lord to the coming generations. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that brothers and sisters, he has done it. Can I get an Amen. He has done it, brothers and sisters. The curtain is torn. The way is made clear. He will never leave us or forsake us. That's an impossibility because Christ made the way. The promise is true. We are not abandoned. We are not alone. We are not left to our loneliness. We are not left to our bad prognoses. We are not left to our fears. We are not left to our pains. And we are not left alone in the face of our enemies. We are not left alone in the dark nights of our souls because, brothers and sisters, Jesus has done it. God has done it. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hither by thine help I've come. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for this reminder that you have done it. You won the day. Now feed us at this table. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's